0: My name is Jason Saltzman. I am the CEO and founder of Alley. Alley is a post incubator in New York City. Actually, we have a few locations now. Last year, we grew into two more cities. We started in New York City in 2011.
1: And are you from New York City?
0: I'm from New York. I'm sort of bridge and tunnel. I'm from Long Island, but I've lived in the city pretty much my whole adult life with a, a minor stint in South Florida. What do you like about New York? I like the pace. I like everything, first of all. Sort of like a New Yorker through and through. I remember escaping Long Island to go to the city when I was very young and sort of like embracing the the vibe and the ambiance of a fast-paced, you-never-know-what-can-happen place that I felt was really filled with opportunity. So if I could say one thing about New York City, it's definitively the vibe of being here as unlike any other
1: city in the world. When you got into entrepreneurship, was that at an early age in New York or when did you decide to go ahead and get into entrepreneurship? I don't think I decided. I think it's kind of
0: like it shows me type of thing. I started my first company when I was 17 years old and I've been self-employed ever since with brief stints in and out of odd jobs when I went broke during my tenure as an entrepreneur. I started very young.
1: Well, why don't you tell us about that first company when you were young? I started for all the wrong reasons.
0: I didn't like college, and I wanted to make a shit ton of money. And that sounds like good reasons, <laughs> yeah. But as you get older, you know, you realize that that can't be your only reasons, and it shouldn't be the base foundation of why you're doing this. Because the reality of growing a business is far worse than that. You don't just have one boss; you have as many bosses as you want to cater to within your company, whether it be your employees, you actually work for them, oddly enough. And then every customer is your boss too. Everybody that you have to do business with, you have to listen to and adhere to. And as far as freedom, you could pretty much give that up because for the beginning, And for the unforeseeable future, while you're taking on this endeavor of growing a business, you could pretty much kiss your life goodbye (laughs) Mm, in most cases. And that's what I did. Early on, I started in the call center business. I sold pretty much everything, mostly data. We aggregated a lot of information and leads for different sales offices. Started smiling and dialing at a young age, which is what we used to call the call center business back in the day, and kind of grew from there.
1: Were you actually smiling while you were dialing, or no?
0: Hell no. There's nothing to smile and dial about. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably, but uh, you know, like everything that's super hard in your life, it teaches you the biggest lessons, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So, what do you think you learned from there?
0: That I hated smiling and dialing. No, <laughs> a lot. If I had to isolate a few things right off the top of my head, it's at a very, very high level. It's not that you have to necessarily fall in love with the idea of what you're doing. I don't believe in you have to be like in awe. Oh my God, I love this. I want to get into it because the reality of getting in is far from reality when you actually get in and see what it's actually like. So I would say that, but once you get in and you understand what that world is like, you're going to spend so much time growing it, you have to find passion in it. I would tell my younger self, you know, have a little bit more passion in choosing what you do and who you work with which is really important. And the second thing is basically who you work with. I mean, it really defines you and your surroundings. And if you're working with negative and the wrong people, it could really have a negative impact, no matter how much you're passionate about what you're doing. So those are kind of two
1: things I learned about that side of the world. I remember the first thing I learned on my job outside of college was basically it was an hourly job where you just had to come in and literally clock in and clock out. And I worked there for a month and I learned that I hated that shit and I never wanted to do it again. Yeah. Sometimes like having those jobs that aren't that great reminds me like how thankful I am on what I'm doing today. So
0: yeah, and motivates you to the best entrepreneurs in the world that I've met were pissed off at what they used to do. They were motivated by the fact that they don't want to go in that direction. So they're going to go in another direction for sure.
1: Yeah. So you think that after that experience, that kind of tinkles on your mind, you think about that every once in a while to make sure that you keep going or where do you go from smiling and dialing place?
0: Uh I think the logic of learning from the day before stuck with me and and I'm not stuck on smiling and dialing, but I am stuck on the lessons that I learned along the way to make sure I keep moving forward. And I say this a lot, bad shit's going to happen. Whether you're call center or whether you're walking down the street, unless you live in a bubble, bad shit's going to happen. I think the trick is, for me, it's to learn from that bad shit, to look at it as a a lesson and not so much a complete puzzle to get over. Find beauty in the solution and figure out at the end of the day, what did you learn from the bad shit that just happened to you? Again, from the call center... You were still in college at the time? I was actually, yes. I was in the beginning of college, right at the tail end of high school. I got into it because someone in my life influenced me. It was actually an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> she loved really fancy things and I didn't have any money. Initially, I started because I wanted to appease her, her thirst. <laughs> For money, and and I I remember when I went on my first date, I was just telling a story about this. I was when I went on my first date with her. She loved fancy restaurants. I didn't have enough money, so I sold my video camera to take her out. And I remember the feeling of having to sell something I loved. And I'm like, this fucking sucks. Like I just don't want to be in a situation where I don't have money. Money is freedom. You know, you could do whatever the hell you want to do. I mean, it sucks that I was motivated by such. Poor intentions overall you know it wasn't like saving the manatees it was to take a girl out but oddly enough she had a brother who was about 24 years old at the time who drove like the most ridiculous cars and he reminded me of mind you this was a different era I'm 39 years old and back in my days the stock market was booming the dot-com business was going out of control even to developers and front-end designers that worked on websites and flash we work going out of college, making like $200,000 a year. It was just a crazy time and everybody had a lot of money. And this young guy about 24 years old, who was my girlfriend's half brother at the time, he was very motivational to me. He reminded me of Ben Affleck in Boiler Room. I don't know if you or your listeners ever saw the movie Boiler Room, I recommend it, but it was basically a bro fest of guys manipulating stock, like Wall Street, you know, second version. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Yeah, you gotta watch it. Yeah, we'll do. His character's crazy. I mean, he could sell, they say in the movie, he could sell bubblegum at the lockjaw ward at Bellevue. Basically walk into any room and convince anybody of anything. And that was this guy. And he came up to me and for better or for worse, he saw I was dating his sister and he saw something. And he was like, you know, you can go to school, you can go to college and you could bust your ass doing XYZ or you can own a Ferrari by the time you're 20 like me you know, and have a beautiful apartment. And I was like, well, I want that. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so I followed his lead and he, he, and he basically mentored me at a young age. And I, like I said, for better or for worse, it sounds like a great story. But the reality was that it was a world that I wish I'm glad I got into because it definitely shaped the way I am today. But it was definitely a trying and trying time on my soul in terms of learning who I really was and who I wanted around me, you know, at that time in my life and how I could be better with myself, not just about the money. So
1: yeah, what did you learn from that part in time?
0: Well, again, aggregating leads and doing for sales offices is one thing. And I loved the aspect of marketing. And as the digital era, the online era was beginning to blossom into what it is today. There was not many people who knew how to navigate the online world. And, and get information from it, You know, building a landing page and getting people to sign up for a service. Not everybody knew how to do it like it is today. It wasn't so easy, and I figured it out at a young age. And I loved that. I loved experiential marketing, marketing in a world where it was new, being able to touch millions of people and getting them to do something. It really turned me on. But the end user, the people and the sales offices that I was selling to, it was a shit show. Right. I mean, we were selling stock leads, you know, and the stockbrokers were the shittiest people in the world. When the mortgage business got hot, we sold mortgage leads. When bankruptcies were at an all-time high, we went to the bankruptcy and legal business, and it was riddled with issues and problems that I was not completely covered with from my side of the business. But regardless of the tumultuous environment that I was in from a industry perspective, the people that I was dealing with on a daily basis sucked. And that's something that stuck out to me. I always wanted to be around awesome people. And I think that my thirst in building what I built now is a direct derivative of saying to myself and making a deal with myself that no matter what I did, even if I was gonna take a pay cut, I was gonna work around awesome people. And it highly motivated to build
1: a community that I'm surrounded by with today. And so, what exactly were you doing for your what girlfriend's brother? Yeah, my girlfriend's brother. Yeah, can you give us yeah, a Yeah, we never got married.
0: You can't. I learned also I can't marry a girl who pretty much motivated with his going out to fancy dinners. <laughs> you know, that's I can good. find a lot of content in that.
1: Yeah, good, so, good thing you realized that. Well, I
0: did everything. You know, yeah. I, well, first I learned the call business, you know, how to make calls, how to turn somebody's into a yes, very adept. That he was right. Bottom line is he saw in me that I had the gift of gab. And he was right. I'm always learning. I'm always trying to learn new things. But I definitely love sales from the point where I don't mean like selling something aggressive. I mean, like connecting with people, finding something you believe in and, and showing them the world that you live in to decide that this is good for them. And them empathizing with that you empathizing with them and basically putting yourself in their shoes and understanding psychology enough to show them in their own way how something works that could benefit them is something I learned in that era. And I loved it. I loved that. So that was something that I definitely take with me today. So but in terms of what I did on a day to day basis, it was basically learn that side of the business. And then from there, learning how to go bigger and think bigger and not just think about me getting on the phone. How could I put other people on the phone and how could I get data for them to follow up on in an age where calling people was getting out of style? It's hard to think about this, but during the 90s, in the very early 90s, when you called somebody up on the telephone, they asked who you were. Right. They picked up. <laughs> they cared who you were. There was no such thing as a list. Take me off the list. They didn't even know. I remember the first time the call center started to be like talking about take me off
1: your list i'm like they know we have a list yeah how do they know that we have a list <laughs> is there a video camera here watching me oh speaking of which i don't want it to ruin any part of the interview is there music in the background that's going on i if my neighbor hold on
0: i'm gonna knock on his door yeah hold on, hold on. hey dude Um, Okay. Is that better?
1: Yeah. I guess he gets the party started early. I know. 9 a.m.
0: I'm usually out by now.
1: No, I'm fine. No, I appreciate it. So, okay. Yeah, we'll cut back in. So how long did you work with him? And then did you make a transition to start your own company from there?
0: Yeah. So I worked with them. I worked with him for a few years. Basically, what had happened was I learned my skills and then I learned also that first off, he actually, one thing he did really cool was it was like our own businesses. So we didn't really work for him. It was like a subsection of other shit because this guy did it like a million things. He had his hand into a million things. So it was like I ran my own business with him. He was just a partner in it. I shifted what I was selling, which I saw as stocks were dissipating. And as the products that we were selling were dissipating, mortgages started to blossom during like the late 90s, early 2000s, where interest rates to where they were and the way the government was deregulating loans and everybody and their mother was doing mortgages. That's the world where all these sales offices wanted information. So I got into that business. One thing I definitely also learned from my early entrepreneurial life is agility, not to stay in one place. Which is really important because a lot of people get
1: stuck, especially once they have some initial success. They'll just keep doing it, even though you might see, in the long run, it might not be working out. So yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that. And so from there, it seemed like you're own owning your own company and that you moved into mortgage space. But is that when you started your first own company, or just tell us about that experience?
0: Again. We built our own LLCs at 17. So to me, it was my own company. Even though I had partners, you know, you'll have partners your whole life if you're so lucky to build businesses. The mortgage business, I got very complacent. And what I mean by that is it was around for a long time. I know that given on who's listening to this right now, if you think of the mortgage industry back in the day and the subprime lending market, you probably know it from like one movie. It lasted a really long time, and it felt like we all had careers. And what I mean by that is that you kind of settle in. I think that that's another big lesson I learned. You know, never keep your feet completely solid on the ground in what you're doing because things can shift rather quickly. Because no matter how obvious it was to the eye after it was done, you know, they say hindsight has twenty-twenty vision. It's definitively the case in this because nobody fucking knew how bad it was going to get. I went from having hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of clients one day, and then the next day gone, poof, it's over. And by the way, having the same bills as I had when I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: Were you living the high life at that point? Were you still dating the girl that was kind of expensive from what we hear?
0: On and off, she lasted a long time in my life, but the reality was too long probably. Definitely. Mm. But I lived, I definitely lived the larger than life lifestyle. I definitely had a ridiculous apartment that I couldn't afford.
1: How much in rent, just so we get an idea for, because we have people from all over the world who are listening.
0: At the time I was paying, and mind you, this is like, I was 24 years old, paying like 3500 a month
1: for an apartment in New York City. Yeah. And did you have other luxury stuff too? I had a
0: BMW. I had a, my accountant told me that one year I spent $30,000 in kettle sodas. (laughs) So I had a pretty, pretty big party habit going out. Just doing that lifestyle, that unfulfilled, shallow lifestyle that everybody thinks they want. Not everybody, but, you know, given where I grew up, you think you want it. But when you get it, it's, it's kind of shitty. It's a life that, you know, it's, it's not really purposeful.
1: All right. Well, then the market basically crashed and you had all these bills still coming in. Did you have any you have saved up money or are you basically just going through it even though you're making tons of money?
0: No, I blew my money. <laughs> I think at the time, I think it's always going to be there. And I think I've gone broke like seven times. I mean, it happens. It's part of, it's quick pro quo as an entrepreneur. I went through it as the market crashed. Again, like I said before, I still had the bills that I had when I was making a lot of money and then when I didn't make anything and my clients went away, I still had the bills. They didn't go away with my money. I wish bills would follow money.
1: Right. So you still had the bills and then, so what was your next step? Did you just had to move back home with mom or what?
0: No, I, so that was kind of a turning point actually in my life. When the business went away, I had kind of hit a crossroads and I said, what do I do with my life? Again, everybody thinks that entrepreneur, for the most part, as I, you know, talk to aspiring entrepreneurs. Many of you are probably listening to this who are thinking about building a business or starting to build a business. A lot of people think that this is something that you select. And sometimes in my experience, it selects you. I really wasn't thinking about being an entrepreneur my whole life. I was just rolling with life and seeing what pops up and going with my opportunities that were right in front of my face. It wasn't this glorious stand of I'm going to work for myself, I'm going to do it. I knew I hated working for other people, for sure, who doesn't? I knew I wanted something big out of my life, but I got engulfed in the game of it all. When your heart starts pumping, and when you go broke and you wake up in the morning, then you realize that you're still alive and you could do this shit all over again. You got all these skill sets that you learn that you want to apply to somebody, something else and you don't want to work for somebody to give them these skill sets you learn because you feel like you could benefit your life tremendously and the people around you, that's a big fucking deal right there. So I kept going. And I think that it was at these crossroads when the mortgage market bottomed out. Now I don't have anything. I don't have any money. And I'm like, oh shit, what do I do to live? My dad worked in corporate America his whole life. So he got me a job interview at his old company that was a publicly traded company. My buddies, who I've known for many years, were like, dude, you kill it at a firm I remember interviewing at Oppenheimer Fund, going into midtown Manhattan and just taking an interview and, a, and, and I got every job offer because I, I didn't really sweat it and I knew that I could do it. And I basically knew how to get a job so well because so many other people worked for me. You know, I had hundreds of people working for me over the years. So I went into a job interview. I crush it. I'd say something like, all right, forget about the small talk. Tell me what you wanna hire. Like who would you hire that walk through that door? Because I don't want to bullshit you and tell you I can do something I can't, because that's just gonna waste our time. And like saying something like that, they'd be like, You're fucking hired. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh shit, you know? And uh because that's what I meant it. You know, I was like, look, I'm not gonna sit there and tell you I could do all this shit and I can't do it. That's real. So I took that and I had my option. I'm like, what do I do? What's the world around me? It just so happened that I saw that the legal world, lawyers suck at marketing. They have this like black and white cookie cutter approach to TV commercials, and they knew nothing about online business. So I was really into, and I knew that since the whole world, after when the mortgage crisis hit, got litigious, got super legal. Everybody needed a lawyer. Everybody needed a bankruptcy lawyer. Everybody needed to work on their loans. And I knew that. Dealing with companies weren't the right way, but lawyers, good lawyers needed clients and they didn't know how to get them. So I found some attorneys that needed some help and we, I established a business model around setting up a new lead aggregation center, mostly catering towards attorneys and assisting them to get marketing. Then my crossroads were, do I fucking take this cozy job at Oppenheimer? Do I go into this job where my dad got me? or do I start my own business and I get investors? And that's something I never did before up to then. I never got investment for anything. It was really like me just making cash. So I had to raise money for the first time. So do I go raise money? Do I take these jobs? And it just so happened that I was talking to people I knew about my idea and they were like, the first thing I learned in investing, in raising capital that is, that side, is if you want This is a very popular saying amongst those who are raising money, but for your listeners, it's very valuable if you don't know it. If you ask for money, you get advice. And if you're asked for advice, you get money. And I asked people that I knew for advice and they were like, hey, I'll do this with you. And one of the guys that was like, I'll do this with you was, listen, I'll do this with you, but you have to move to Miami. And at the time I was like, I love New York. I love the vibe. I love it, but this town beats you the hell up. You know, when you're down, Shit's really down and it kills you. So I just wanted to get the hell out at that crossroads. And I said, jobs or building a business with palm trees. And I decided the latter, obviously. And I moved to South Florida to start my new
1: business. In 2008, are we at that time frame?
0: Yeah, it was around 2008, 2009. Okay. Okay.
1: And then, so yeah, I, think I, I
0: stuck around a little too long in the world of mortgages to try to get all those clients back.
1: I then just realized that wasn't going to come back. So then it was time to move to Miami. I wasn't going
0: to come back. I I was stuck on it.
1: But yeah, because that's what once you have some success in something, you keep thinking maybe there's an opportunity to come back. Because all it take is one second for you to reel those clients back.
0: It's a weird world, you know. Everyone was like, "It's coming around the corner. It's just slow right now. It's gonna, it's cyclical, you know, all the shit." But it's like that saying about the two mice, one stays in the room with all the cheese and the other one goes out to look for new cheese.
1: So you went to go look for new cheese in Miami? I went to go look for
0: new cheese. It took me a long time to do it, but I did it.
1: Yeah, so tell us about that. I wanna make sure we hit on everything that you do today too, so I don't know if it's- Yeah, yeah, no, like
0: Cheddar, baby. Yeah. (laughs) So I started a new business, I set it up, I got two new partners that invested in this company. It failed miserably there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of growing pains to it. There's a lot of learning curves. I wasn't really financially supported the way the investment was, but inevitably I was the CEO. It was my baby. I should have been able to turn it around. That being said, it was another really big learning experience. And one thing that it definitely did for me is I opened up my network in South Florida to meet some really amazing individuals. And one of the guys I met was doing something completely different. In the entrepreneurial ecosystem, especially in South Florida at the time, there was nobody doing their own business. Everybody was kind of like working for other people or so on and so forth. Being an entrepreneur was still new. People thought I was like a drug dealer. (laughs) But I met somebody that was very like-minded who lived in my building, and he was doing a teeth whitening company. And I remember being fascinated with his ability to execute And we shared a lot of the same values, but I knew that he wasn't doing exactly what he wanted to do. I was kind of intuitive to it, but he learned so many different skill sets to starting a packaging and growing. We became like brothers and we started to think about what's out there that we knew a lot about. And I love the whole idea of helping attorneys where he was more into the getting into the offices and building technology to help offices function better and he was really obsessed over the flow of paperwork. And I didn't really share that complete vision with him, but I did want to build a tech company because I saw everybody making a billion dollars doing it, and I believe that he could do it. We started the business together kind of getting to know the operations of law firms. We started an offline business to understand and get into these offices to learn how to process paperwork. And the capital that we made from this company We invested in developers, and then he kind of led the way to build a product that morphed into a company today that just actually raised the Series C financing. And at the time, as a marketer, my role was aggregating clientele for this product. And really, when the product was in build mode, it really didn't need a marketer. So my role was kind of dissipating, and he was really taking the reins on that. So I was really looking for something new to do, but I wanted it to be cool. I finally got a taste of what it's like to work on something cool. And once you get that bug and you're like, fuck it. I don't care if I go broke. I want to work on some cool shit because if I'm going to spend 90% of my day doing this shit, I want it to be cool. Mortgages aren't cool? No, mortgages fucking suck.
1: Did I tell you my, <laughs> ba- did I tell you my background? No, no. I was a commercial real estate mortgage broker, so I feel you. That's why I'm trying yeah. to be cool and do a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're being so I actually
0: I, I brokered leads for commercial real estate. It wasn't just residential.
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: I went so I sold that by the way, I say mortgages, I sold everything. I sold energy, mortgages. Chances are if you got an email for debt consolidation in the early two thousands, it came from me. <laughs>
1: I was like, I learned how to spam. Yeah, and you, I mean, you got you got to print in Africa. We got to send money too, as well.
0: No, actually, I never got involved with that crazy, <laughs> raw, like, like horrible shit. This was up and the up and up. I had Fortune fifty clients
1: that used to use
0: my center, so it was really cool. I was really looking for shit, and the startup scene in two thousand ten was very early. When we went to New York to pitch our business, because there's no money. There was no venture money in Miami at the time. I think that things are starting to percolate now, but in Silicon Valley, there's a shit ton of money. You have companies like Dropbox and Airbnb like killing it. We were both from New York, something that we bonded over was, we were both from the New York area. So we thought going to our roots to raise capital was probably the best thing for us to do. So that being said, we went to New York City and we started at our mission of raising capital. Where did you go to meet other entrepreneurs and venture capitalists? Spaces like WeWork. I remember General Assembly was a co working space, and these spaces started to pop up. There was only about three or four of them in New York City at the time. WeWork was only one space. But as soon as I stepped foot in that place, I was like, not the aesthetic, not the idea. The fact that you get to meet so many people by walking into a room and everybody pretty much had their guard down and wanted to be better. And there were like-minded people that wanted to get to know what I did. I was like, I wanna be involved with this. And then the entrepreneur mindset kicked in. Where is this going? What's the financial opportunity? Where is it lacking? I thought to myself, you know, I'm from Long Island and if I took a train every day, to go all the way downtown where WeWork was at the time, where all these spaces started to pop up, it would take my commute to be four hours a day. So I started to think that there was a very missed opportunity in this communal, co-working, community space ethos in Midtown, like right by Penn Station. So I had this idea, open up a space in Penn Station and the floodgates will open up because everybody wants to connect with awesome people.
1: And before you go too much further, just so you kind of mentioned it, maybe people can figure it out. But if they don't know what a co-working space is, because I would think New York's probably one of the first places it started. Can you just explain to us what offices were like before and then what it was like when you walked into that?
0: Sure. Like shared office spaces were basically like what executives and what freelancers used to just have a place to work so they didn't freak anybody out by bringing them to their apartments. They were basically like an office that, you know, was cut up and shared with people that just wanted a place to work. And it wasn't really based on community and getting together and events. It was based on just basic fundamentals of having a place to work that was subsidized through a larger lease that somebody would take. And this shit's been around for a hundred plus years. But what was new and what spawned about a new industry that fed the growth of a company like WeWork is this need for people to get together, to share stories and to have a support system that can help you through the shittiest of times, which is what it's like to build a business from scratch. That's what the culture shifted into that overall need. And as that need evolved and as the entrepreneurial Renaissance is what I like to call it. it, started to ferment where people stopped working at large organizations like Goldman Sachs and they wanted to build their own businesses. Instead, it fueled this fire of this need to work in an environment that, yes, it was productive and it was cost effective and it was a shared economy product, but it, with, with the beauty of it and the reality of it is where can I meet amazing people that are going to change my life? And I was really stuck on that.
1: And so basically you saw there's a couple of these spaces in basically downtown New York, but you wanted one that was closer to you or would be closer to certain areas. So you just started to start your own. Is that the deal?
0: So I saw the need. Like, again, I loved it. And as my entrepreneurial mind started working is like, well, how do I do this? And where is the problem? Like, what problem am I solving? And they were packed. I mean, you couldn't even I was like, how do I take a test? They're like, oh, you got to get on a wait list. There is no space for anybody. I was like, oh, shit you know
1: <laughs> definitely demand
0: so that kind of you know I'm always into so personally I believe in and I write about this and I wrote an article in entrepreneur magazine about how I feel that competition I know that guys like Peter Thiel is like don't get into competitive spaces industries and I'm like fuck that That shit's validated there's a reason why it's competitive because there's money to be made and it's already validated you know I don't have to think about it like real estate there wasn't so much goddamn money in real estate that nobody would be doing it so I felt the same way so I was always looking for something I'm not crazy like that as much as a gambler as I am I'd like to know that I'm putting my life around something that I don't have to think about the market so much and I knew that the market was ripe. and I knew that there was nothing around Penn Station there was nothing centrally located in New York that was accessible to all of the surrounding boroughs so I pitched the idea I did a back of the napkin, literally on the back of a napkin, in a steakhouse to one of my lawyers that I used to do business with. A New York commercial real estate attorney, guy named David Golanter, who invested in our other tech company, who was like family at the time. And I was like, what if I do this? And he's like, I'm in, this sounds fun.
1: And so just from there, it, it blossomed into what it is today?
0: No, it didn't blossom overnight. And I love the saying, it took me 10 years to look like an overnight success because there was a lot of, a lot of problems. I mean, look, I just had this idea. I got a yes really quickly. I didn't really understand what the hell I was getting into. And I lived in Miami at the time. The first thing I had to do was hop on a plane and move to New York City, back to New York City. So I had to kind of figure all that out and I had to get a lease And David was very acclimated with the commercial real estate market because he's been a commercial real estate attorney for 20 plus years, and he leveraged his connections to get our first space. But the lease took a year, and several buildings fell through. Remember, at the time, there were only three coworking spaces, and that that presents its own issues. But from a landlord-tenant issue, the landlords never understood the use. We didn't wasn't around. So they didn't, the landlords didn't understand that we were going to take a space and basically fill it with as many people as possible and then throw parties. So like once it got around to questions like, how much credit do you have? What's the use? You know, There'd always be a hang up with the lease to the point where it seemed many times that we had a lease and then it didn't go through to the point where this was never going to happen in the first place. So, you know, at lease after lease that fell through, start to think, what the hell am I going to do if this doesn't go through? And then just like a lot of the major deals in my life have gone down it got down to the last wire, the last lease and a moment of exhaustion, and we got a lease done a year later. And that was the beginning of my problems.
1: Yeah, the whole time you were just trying to pitch this idea, did you have money saved up? No, so it
0: wasn't, I wasn't pitching the idea The idea was already solidified within me and now my partners at the time. It was about getting the lease done. It wasn't pitching. It was like, where is the space located? What's the union economics? And then let's go into a lease negotiation, which if many of you out there don't know New York City real estate, if leases could swim, New York City leases would be sharks.
1: And I understand because that's what I was saying. I mean, I guess you were trying to pitch the landlord, not the investor at that point. Because yeah, because all those guys that are landlords are like thinking, Well, why can't I get do this myself? Why do I need to lease it to these guys who can cut it up themselves? So Yep. Understood that. So you got the lease and you said that was the least of your problems? Yeah, the least of the least of my problems. Yeah.
0: Well, you know now it's getting down to the nitty gritty. So I didn't know anybody. So we originally thought that getting a marketing partner to the table would be a really great idea. So we hired this person who had a very large following on her uh, meetup platform. Her number one job was driving traffic into the space and nobody showed up.
1: <laughs> That's not good.
0: So we opened up. We actually opened up over a different name. It wasn't called Alley at the time. It was called something else. And then I started to go out. I started to meet people, and I'm like, "Hey, why aren't you working here?" And they were like, "Well, because we don't like that person that,
1: that, <laughs> that you hired." That runs
0: the, the, yeah. So I was like, "So I noticed how much the environment was built off of the backs of the people that were starting the business." So once I figured that out, it was really like, "All right, well, how do I take over now?" And then it was it wasn't really that big. It was a big deal at the time because remember, things get emotional. You start working with people, commitments are made, things of that nature, but nothing worked out. In business, you gotta say to yourself, Nothing's working out. I gotta do something different, no matter what the stakes are. So I started meeting people and I started going out myself and I started really vibing with people and I started offering to come in. And and at that point I knew that th- we needed a rebrand and we needed to execute our agreement that basically said if you didn't perform can get rid of you. And that's, we executed that. And then thought of a name. I thought of a name that was near and dear to all of us. I'm just kidding. It really didn't mean that much. And actually to David Galanter, my original investor and my my best friend and brother and my my uncle at the same time, he actually thought of the name. <laughs> it was like an argument for like a years who thought of the name. But I remembered, I woke up in the morning, I'm like, oh shit, he did think of the name and I had to like call him and be like, you know what? You've been right all these years. So we changed the name to Allie. It was actually Allie NYC when we first changed the name. And then within 30 days of the rebrand, Sandy happened. Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy, yeah. And it just so happened that we were the only coworking. Now, Sandy was horrible for many families and it devastated most of New York City. And the surrounding areas, it was a horrible storm that did so much bad for people. But Sandy was actually, and I like to think that out of something horrible, there's always something good that comes out of it if you dig deep enough. And I know in my case, in my world, Sandy knocked out all the power to every tech company that was downtown and every co-working space that was downtown. And here I am sitting in midtown Manhattan with a space that completely had power. And I sent an email that we were open. And if you needed refuge to build your business, come on in. And overnight, the space had thousands of people in it. And, we had, and Bloomberg TV took their cameras in it and did a story on us and eventually me. And it was, just, it was a spotlight on how startups are braving the storm. It was a game changer. Put us on the map. So as horrible as what Sandy was, it kind of like was really lucky for us. So something good did come out of that horrible storm. But I also think that as lucky as that sounds, look at all the shit I had to get to get into that point. Construction, learning about Cat5e cables and fiber optics and TI and all this other crap that you have to learn to start a space. And then to have it fail and then to revamp it and to to learn it. And then luck is what happens. I love Seneca. You know, luck is what happens when persistence meets opportunity because I definitively believe in that.
1: No, I agree. Because, I mean, if you could have stopped even after the first company or whatever, you know, if you keep persevering and keep trying, it's going to happen only because you put in that effort, right? So the more times you put in that effort, the more likely that it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So what's it like today? Do you want to kind of tell us what you... um? think going to happen with your future there at Ali?
0: Yeah. Growing the company, well, growing internally, 2017 was a massive growth year for us. We went from having, call it one and a half spaces to five locations in different parts of the country. So it was a massive growth undertaking. And now we're basically focused on infrastructural growth. To, we're redeveloping what we believe. It's not about co working. It's not about a desk. If you want a desk, WeWork has the dopest desk on the market. You know, they have beautiful space and we're just you're not going to compete in that world. So what we're really about is the value that we're bringing to these entrepreneurs as they're building their business. So our whole team is dedicated every day and our mission is to providing value and figuring out how we can create more opportunities for people that come to us. And the desk that you get is only the small piece of the overall picture of what we're doing at Alley. What do you mean by that? There are multiple tracks that you need to kind of get on that we believe, not that you need to get on, but we, there are multiple tracks that could be additive in your journey of being an entrepreneur. And One is meeting the right people, right? The right people is essential. So we're fixated on vetting like-minded people properly. Having a community, if you enter in a cancer It could destroy the community so quick. So we're really protective over the community and the way we build our infrastructure to allow for that to happen. So Alley's not open for everybody. It's a private space. You apply to get it, And we don't vet you based on who your friends are or how much money you have. We look at if the community can help you and if you can help the community. Those are the major factors. We do something what I like to call like the drink test. Would we get a beer with you? Could we see ourselves working with you? I mean, these are the things that are essential to other people that that they want to be around other people. So this like-mindedness of getting the right people in a room, we're fixated on that. Then once you have people in the right room, what are you providing? them? We've set up a platform where people can have marketing support. You can hire within the community. And the greatest thing about it is you can have a drink with the person that you're about to do business with. You don't have to go through this whole sales process that where somebody's kind of selling you. It's like, get to know the person before you decide to do business with them, right? See if you can click around values, right? And we're really focused on our programming and how we can bridge the gap between really large organizations and the startup ecosystem. Most recently, our biggest deal, we partnered with Verizon and we've actually opened space with Verizon and we're launching a series of programming with Verizon. And we just opened in New York City a brand new 5G lab to build technology off of the new 5G, which is really cool. Because if you, what 5G is, it's you have 3G on your phone, then you have LTE. 5G's not out yet. It's at Ally, in a lab, and we built it with Verizon. And people are building technology on top of 5G. We actually started an incubator together where we're launching new technology on top of 5G together with Verizon. And we're enhancing those relationships because the value add that Verizon brings to startups is astronomical. Because small companies and ideas, you need what? You need access to people that can help you build your product and you need access to capital. And those are all things that large organizations have. And they want to give because they don't want to be completely disrupted from the outside. They want to be part of that. So when you blend these two worlds together, it becomes really awesome. And they pay well to us. (laughs) So we have a good business around it. So we're focused on those really, really fundamental aspects.
1: And growing the spaces, obviously, it sounds like, yeah, you had a huge growth year. Do you think it's going to be a little bit more difficult when you move to other cities trying to make sure you get the right people in? Because I could understand from a New York perspective, was probably a little bit easier to find out that, hey, people weren't coming to your space because of the girl you hired, right? Because they didn't like her. But maybe if you're at other cities or areas, do you think it's going to be a little bit harder? Or I guess you're in the process of doing that right now?
0: Yeah. So we've done it in a few cities. And I'll tell you that it's not hard. Well, first of all, I take a step back. Everything is fucking hard. Okay? <laughs> so it is hard. It's hard as hell. However, that being said, it's about the right people, right? It starts with one a waterfall starts with one drop of water. Spaces that are special start with one awesome person or two awesome people, then three awesome people. I truly believe as long as you're getting amazing people together and you're focused on creating value, you consistently nail that in, then people want to be around that. And that has, I've shared those values with the people that I'm humbled to be working around right now. What I've been able to do is surround myself around amazing people that teach me every day. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own. When these cities have their own communities and you have to find people that want to build a community and want to nurture that community and want to instill the same values that we all had from the very beginning when I started this space, with that transcends over it to other than just New York. So yes, it's hard. We have a formula. And that formula is really around awesome people. And then once you do that, you have to let these communities kind of start up on its own. And you also have to get the right investors that can withstand that time that you're not going to make capital. So as long as you build your business model right, there's something to be said about it. That being said, that might sound easy. I promise you, it sure
1: is shitting. I can understand. I mean, I think most people might give up after a year of trying to sign a lease.
0: Yeah, well, that separates the doers and the nots.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. So what do you project for Ally going forward in your uh, continued entrepreneurship experience?
0: So Ally is focused right now on building internal infrastructure so we can offer more to our existing spaces. In the next year, we're going to be coming up with some mind-blowing stuff for people to build on. So if you're an early stage thinker, or even if you want to work after hours and if you want to be part of something ridiculously amazing to build your business on top of it's sort of like an amusement park like we have the space now we want to put all these amazing rides in so it freaks you the fuck out while you're there in a good way <laughs> well in a bad way too i mean this shit's hard you know it's definitely a roller coaster on that node building internally so we can offer as much value as humanly possible and we can get you not only from meeting the right person to building a framework of what your business is going to become to you launching it and deploying it and covering all that content along the way. So you're gonna see a lot of that. So expect a lot of content, a lot of value, new partnerships, the growth of existing partnerships, and, and a lot more. A lot of work.
1: Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. Just search for millionaire interviews in your podcast player and be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. Where are you located now? So people, if they're listening, maybe they're in that particular city and they can check out one of your spaces.
0: Yeah. So obviously we're in three locations in Manhattan. We have two in Chelsea, part of our 5G lab. That's in our headquarters. And then we have one in uh financial district, which is right next to the Freedom Tower, which is awesome. If you're in town, shop by, go in and ask for me. I'm either in one of those spaces. I'd love to meet you, show you around. It's pretty awesome. We're on Harvard Square, right? We have Alley Harvard Square, which is right next to Harvard on 10 Ware Street. And then we have our space in Washington, D.C. That's on L Street. So if you're in any of those areas, stop by, meet with me or one of the amazing people that are part of this growing team and see what it's like for yourself. See that vibe smack you in the face and hopefully it motivates you to be part of an awesome community.
1: Well, thank you for doing the interview. If people wanted to reach out to you and they aren't able to reach you in public and stop by one of the alleys, what's the best place for them to... Go ahead and say thanks for doing the interview or learn more about you. I
0: have Twitter and Instagram. I'm all about Instagram right now. It's at Jason Saltzman or at Saltzman Jason on Twitter.
1: Okay. That's pretty easy. Other than that, any parting words of advice now looking back through the interview or anything else that you wanted to bring up for the entrepreneurs that are listening?
0: Yeah. If you're thinking about building a business, and for those of you who are thinking about getting in and diving in, don't fucking do it. <laughs> no. No. Be prepared. The world right now seems to glamorize what it's like to build a business because all you hear about in the media is a company going public selling for a hundred million dollars or raising a billion dollars on a series D or E funding. That is the outlier to a much bigger thing that's happening right now. 99% of startups fail and you need to wrap your head around that. If you could deal with the lessons that you learn along the way, as you get shit on and kicked in the face, and failing is not really failing, it's learning lessons. And if you can embrace that and you get excited by it, then this is right for you.
1: Awesome, well, thank you for doing the interview, Jason. We really appreciate it.
0: Cool, all right, man.